but it's when we begin to understand who you are in these variety of names that you provide us with that life begins to make sense and things come together and a dream becomes reality. So we'd ask it today that you'll speak to us through your word, teach us your truth, and help us to hear you. Speak, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're in Romans um, chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. As we continue this uh, search to understand the issues of truth and grace and righteousness and law and why all these things are the way they are, why God has made this the way that he has put it together. And we've walked through this for the last few weeks. And if you've got your outlines there, it'll help you immensely to get a better idea of what we're talking about. Now, we were reminded that this book is written to both Jews and Greeks who have become Christians. But the struggle has begun to happen is that Jewish people have brought their form of legalism and adherence to the law into the Christian church. And the Greek people have brought a system or an idea of grace that resists the law entirely and tries to ignore it. Paul says you need a synthesis of the two to understand God's justice on one end and then his powerful grace on the other, how it is reflected by the wonder of the law and the justice that it declares. In chapter 1, Paul says that God imparts his righteousness to us. He places it into our lives as we receive this wonderful gift of grace and live by faith in Jesus who died for our sin. That Jesus, in his death, receives our penalty of sin, and thereby the justice is the law, the rightness that is placed there, declares us right because of what Jesus has done for us. It goes on to talk about the fact that, that God's wrath is shown throughout our world in his relentless opposition to anything and everyone that would distort and try to destroy truth and replace it with a lie. That his wrath is meant to help us understand why God's grace exists and how we can respond to it as well. He goes on to say, but that law that's laid out in that recognition of what is right and what is wrong does not give us the need or the right to judge one another in relationship to how well we're doing in our relationships one to another. He says, you don't have the right to judge anyone. The law itself is sufficient. The Holy Spirit itself is sufficient to bring conviction and understanding and lead us to a place of repentance. He says, your job as Christians is to declare the reality of who God is, the truth of his law, and the wonder of his grace. And that as you do that one to another, you'll find yourself unified in grace and in truth. This idea of grace and truth, which is talked about in chapter 3, are concepts that he says you have to continually struggle with and work with to understand how you integrate them together and how you can become 
on one end, this wondrous son and daughter of God who is loved deeply by God without any hesitation or any qualification. And on the other end, our calling to be righteous, to live in a right manner, to be light and salt to a world that's living in darkness and disgust and uh, just question. Blindness is the term he uses over and over again. So that's chapter 3. You see, he finishes up the chapter saying you have to understand that sin reigns in all of our lives unless grace is received. That the only purpose of the law was to clarify our need for grace and to help us understand the standard that God calls us to as his sons and his daughters. Okay, so we walked through those three chapters today. And today we're going to look at chapter 4. So if you're in your Bibles, you need to turn to chapter 4. And I'm going to read through the text, uh, make a few comments here and there. And then we will go into uh, what I will call the subtext or a better understanding of what Paul is trying to help us grab a hold of. Uh, the white behind the black is the way that the Jewish people would refer to it, the rabbi referred to it. That is that the black letters are those letters that we read and we get a general comprehension. But the white letters that are written behind it in holiness by God is a, is a wondrous subtruth that's there all along that only those who truly seek and desire to find that will discover it. Okay, so that's the second place we'll go. So today let's start with chapter 4 of Romans. It begins like this. What then... Shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this manner? He's referring back to the issue of righteousness only by faith, the grace given to us by God. He says, well, what then did Abraham discover in this particular issue? He said, in fact, Abraham was not justified by works. And if he was, he had something to boast about, but never before God. The scripture says this. He goes on to say, Abraham believed God. And then it was credited to him as righteousness. The word credited or imputed means that God placed upon him righteousness because of his belief in God's love for him and God's direction for him and God's desire for him and God's promises that he lays out for him. So he says that he recognized who God was. He responded to him and God credited him with righteousness, even though he was not righteous, which we see clearly as we walk through Abraham. If if, if ever there was a person who didn't have a great amount of righteousness in him, I'm sorry, but Abraham fell into it. That was one, that was one struggling guy. You start walking through his life. I, I can't believe his wife continued with him. Wow, amazing stories if you get into that whole area there. He says, now, he says, to the person who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but it's an obligation. Okay, so he's simply saying that when you work for something, you should receive a wage for that work. So if you do work for me and I say, I'm going to pay you $20 an hour and you get done working, and I give you $5 after five hours work, you look at me rather funny-like and say, what's this? You owe me this money. You owe me $80 for four hours work. And I say, I've only got five to give you. He said, no, 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 no. You need to pay me the $80 and you come up with that. Okay, so he's saying that this is normal. That's, that's understandable. When we work, we deserve certain things. He says, it's not an obligation. He said it's something that we're owed for what comes into place there. He says, however, the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So he says, 
So if you believe that God has provided everything for you and you believe that in faith, it's not about how you work for it. It's simply that God's going to provide that for you and you work out of love for him. You work out of recognition of who he is and what he's done in your life. And you believe that he's going to count you as righteous. He's going to provide you everything you need for the wage that you require in your life. All right. Now, he says, David says the same thing. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from work. So he said, Abraham spoke to this issue. In reality, Abraham tried to help people understand that you could not come to God on the basis of your works, that sin would continue to push you away from God. You could only come to him on the basis of asking forgiveness, believing his promises, and walking in the manner that he told you to walk in. He says, actually, David, some of you think that David, well, David was David. David was a man who lived after God's own heart. Surely David lived according to the law. And he says, no, that's not true at all. David says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered over. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So David also understood that the only way in which we could be counted as righteous before God, the only way in which we could find ourselves having a relationship with God was if we asked him for forgiveness and received it as he chose to give it to us on the basis of our faith, not on the basis of how hard we worked. He says, now, is this blessedness, this blessing from God, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Remember, this other issue we constantly have, and Ken had to bring it up today, you know. So one of the issues was the Jews considered themselves, the circumcision was the sign or the seal of the covenant of God, the promise of God. And if you were circumcised as a Jewish person, you were set aside by God and you were recognized as special, as different, as chosen. You were one of the chosen ones. And circumcision was the seal of that. And so all children would be circumcised at a very, very young age, after X amount of days after they had been born. All right. So that was the process. And he's going now. He says, what? It, so is the promise only for those who are circumcised? Because that's what the Jewish people were saying. They were actually telling the Greeks, you need to be circumcised. So Ken's statement about those guys that are up there, there was a few who were not circumcised yet. And we were going to go ahead and perform the circumcision process. No, that wasn't going to happen. But that's what was going on here. You see, they were telling the Greeks, you guys need to get circumcised. Really? We need to get circumcised? Yes, because that's the seal of the covenant. If you're not circumcised, you can't receive the blessing of God in your life. Paul says, really? He says, well, interestingly enough, what happened? Under what circumstances was Abraham credited with righteousness? Was it after he was circumcised or before? He says, it was before, not after. He received the declaration of righteousness from God, it says it was credited to him as righteousness, he believed God, before he was circumcised. Then he was circumcised along with Ishmael, who was at that point in time 13 years of age, which was the age of manhood when you become a man as a Jewish person. So it's, there's an interesting picture taking place there as well. So he says, hold it. Abraham was counted as righteous before he was Circumcised, And circumcision was simply the process by which he declared his commitment to God and his desire to be set aside in a specific way. Now, Paul's obviously referring to baptism here in, in relationship to the uh, Christian people. He just doesn't refer to it until later. He 
He's going to deal with that in a, in a few chapters very, very specifically. But he's just kind of throwing that seed in there for them to begin to understand that circumcision was supposed to be a response of people who had been declared righteous and therefore they respond to God with a willingness to be circumcised, become part of that promise that he had given to them. Does that make sense? We getting that? Okay, good. It says, he says now, as he continues on, this circumcision was a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. Now, what Paul is saying here is saying, actually, Abraham is more a father to the Greeks than he is to the Jews. And they're going, what? What? What are you saying, Paul? He says, oh, Abraham was circumcised afterwards, not before. And the Greeks who have come to know Christ and recognize and yield to his life, Afterwards, they are baptized and they follow in Christ's footsteps. So really, they're more sons of Abraham than you are. Then he continues on. He says, he is then also the father of the circumcised, though, who not only are circumcised, but who follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So we're back with the same argument that he gave us earlier. But it wasn't through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. But through the righteousness that comes by faith for those who depend on the law are heirs. If those who depend on the law are heirs, then faith means nothing. The promise is worthless because the law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. And we've already dealt with that issue of wrath and transgression earlier as we talked about this particular issue. So he's continuing to bring up things we've been learning. If you don't understand some of these terms, I'm not going to go over them today. You need to grab a CD or go online and listen to those messages, and it'll help you to grasp some of these things that he's trying to share at this point in time. So he says, The promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only those who are under the law, but also those who have the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all. Abraham is the father of all those who respond to Christ. You are all sons and daughters of God. And in the same way, sons and daughters of Abraham. As it is written, I have made you, Abraham, a father of many nations. He's our father in the sight of God in whom he believed The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which did not exist. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And he became the father of many nations, just as it had been said of him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. And Sarah's womb was also dead. Now, if we understand that, it meant that she'd already gone through menopause. She was unable to have children. That's why Sarah laughs when the Lord says, you're going to have a child. She laughs. I I can't have children. It's impossible. It's impossible. He said, but Abraham still believed. Well, The Lord can create something out of nothing. If he's the creator, he can do this. 
So he said he didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith. He gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. And that's why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. So he's delivered over to death for our sins. He died on the cross so that he might receive the penalty for our sins. The first thing we talk about over and over and over again, that once we admit that we are a sinner who needs forgiveness, then we believe that he's a savior who can provide that forgiveness. And at that point in time, when you believe that, God hears you, he recognizes it, and he declares you as righteous because you have accepted Christ's penalty paid for you. The penalty that he took on his life, he gave for you. And when you do that, when you believe, you say, Lord, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I don't understand, I don't comprehend it all, but I believe that he did. Then God says, great, count you as righteous because God desires for everyone to be brought into his kingdom. God wants everyone to be rescued. He wants everyone to come to an understanding of what his son has done and have the opportunity to experience real life as a son and a daughter of God. Okay, that's his desire. That's his, that's his intention all along. He was delivered over to death for our sins. And then it says he was raised to life for our justification because then Jesus is the power as your Savior and as your Lord to determine whether or not he will receive you into the kingdom. It's been given to him. He's the one who paid for you. So he says, yep, you can come in. He says, oh, I'm not so sure about Phipps. I'm... Okay, come on. You, know, you see the picture? He looks at Lee and he goes, Lee, 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 Lee. No. He looks at each of us and says, come in, come in, come in. And that's the declaration of Jesus after he rose from the dead. All those who caused me death, not only do I forgive, but I invite them. I invite them into my house. So there's this wonderful picture. It's this glorious picture that Jesus talked about before. And he says, in my father's house are many mansions. That's back in John 20. He says, you don't need to be afraid. In my father's house are all these incredible places set up for you. These wonderful homes set up for you. I heard a great picture. And I said, that's such a great picture we talked on this weekend. Here's the picture. He says, it's a picture of as you, after you die, God grabs a hold of you and he puts you into this beautiful black limousine. The black limousine pulls up and there's all these people standing around. It's all your relatives and friends and they're all standing around and going, hey. And you're looking at me going, wow, this is so cool. What's going on? And you get out of the limo and you see this great big bus that's over on the side. And you say, what's behind the bus? You getting a picture now? And Jesus is there and he says, hey, move that. What? Bus. And he moves it and there's this glorious house. He says, there's your place. Made for you. Perfect. Exactly what you always wanted What your heart always desired. There it is. Welcome. Welcome to the home of the Father. And that's the picture. He's saying that Jesus is raised for our justification. He says, you are welcome home. You're my brother. You're my sister. Come home. I'm the judge. I get to make that determination. Okay? Got that great picture? So that's the cry of Romans chapter 4. 
Now let's take a little bit of a look at the subtext. Let's pray before we go there, all right? Father, speak to us today as we spend a little bit of time trying to understand this text and Abraham and, and the wonder picture, this glorious picture of vision and how you desire to give us vision and a dream that you want to fulfill in our lifetime. So speak to us today as only you can. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Abraham has this vision of, of faith. I call it the provision of faith promise. What God wants to provide for Abraham. And he begins his journey early on. So he says, what shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter of, of faith, of vision, of the promises of God? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, then he had something to boast about, but he never boasted before God. The scripture says Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul is trying to help us understand that the law and adherence to the law or the ideas of circumcision or baptism or whatever form you want to follow after we're going to share in communion today, the special picture that God gives us, that as you do those things, those things in and of themselves are declarations of what's supposed to have happened in your life. They in and of themselves are just drinking some grape juice and eating a piece of bread. They're just dunking yourself in some water and saying, I'm cleaner than I was before. What makes them meaningful is what happens prior to taking that step of faith. He says, you know... The rabbis missed the teaching. Abraham always taught that the law could not provide this. Abraham never saw the law. The law wasn't in existence now. Moses brought the law later to clarify the standard that God has set for all of mankind. To help us understand our desperate need for a Savior because of our sin. So Abraham does the right thing because he knows what is right and what is wrong. And it is the wrong thing even when he knows that it's wrong. But God says, because you believe in my promise, because I've chosen you for this thing and you continue to follow me, despite your sin, I will count you as righteous. I'll look forward to the time when Jesus will come and I will hold off, I will hold off the justice that's supposed to be performed in your life, that you're supposed to get the death penalty. I'll hold off on that. Hold off, appeal, 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 until finally Jesus comes and says, I'm going to die in his place. Ah, set him free. That's the picture of Abraham waiting here. So it says um, Abraham is in this, this process with God where he has been called out of, of a, a town and a family that's full of, of hate and anger and sinfulness. And he's been called out of that to be something else, to be something different. God has called him out to take him to a special land. That's his previous story. You have to go back into Genesis to discover some of that. Now, he has settled into the land of Canaan, which will become the land of Israel that we know it now at a later date. But there's a whole series of things that are going to have to happen before Israel gets back here. And God will actually even tell Abraham that they're going to spend 400 years in captivity. They find out later it's in Egypt. And we know the story now. But God tells Abraham, it's going to happen to your people. And then I'm going to bring them back into the land and they'll inherit the promised land. and It will become what we would refer to as Israel. 
all these things are going to happen, God said. But first of all, Abraham, you're the beginning. You're the seed through which everything else is going to take place. Now, the story interesting just before God speaks to him here is that Abram has settled in this section of land and, and Lot, his nephew, is, is in another area of land. An invading party comes in and they grab Lot and his family and they take it off with them. And Abraham learns about this and the other people that are around in the area, the other kings and those, uh, are kind of slow to respond. So Abraham grabs together all of his men, grabs everybody else that he can, calls into arms, and they go and they chase this invading uh, force that has gone into town. And he catches up to them and they kill all of them and they bring out Lot and all the people and all the goods. Nothing is lost. He shows back up at Salem and here now are the kings who finally showed up to go save the people. They're late. And they're, wow, Abram, this is great what you did. What a great job. Thank you so much what you've done. You get to keep all the goods that you got. And Abram says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to keep anything. He says, as a matter of fact, I recognize that you have a special priest with you called Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, who's a priest, it tells us in Hebrews, there's a big story for you. Ooh, we're going out holy. Yes, we are. Oh, it tells us in Hebrew that Melchizedek was a type of Christ, or some would even say it was actually Christ himself, representative in a, in a special angelic form at this point in time. And that Abram comes to him and he offers him a tithe. He gives him 10% of all these things that he captured. He gives it to the priest to place in their temple to be used for them. And he also receives from him the first picture of communion. He receives bread and wine together in the covenant they share together. It's a, it's a marvelous picture of uh, pre-Christ understanding. So as a result of that, then we turn to Genesis chapter 15. So in Genesis chapter 15... He begins to, to clarify what's going on here. He left his family and friends to pursue the journey that God had sent him on. He was going, not knowing. God gives him a vision. That means giving up something in order to go somewhere else. Now, I want to say this. A vision is a dream that God turns into reality as we pursue it. A vision will never become reality unless you pursue the vision that God has given you. It's a, it's, a, it's a promise that he lays before you. It's a calling that he'll give to each one of you personally. All of us are given by God a calling, a vision that we need to respond to. And if we don't respond to it, when you are in your 60s, 70s, or 80s, you'll find yourself frustrated with the fact that you never accomplished the purpose that God had for you because you refused to follow the vision that God had given you. Abraham has followed the vision that God has given him. Now, the vision, though, changes. He calls him out of this land, and there's a new vision that begins to happen. Abram thought that he was going to have lots and lots and lots of children. I'll make you a father of many nations. That's part of the promise that God had given him and the vision. And so he thought what God meant was, you're going to have an incredible amount of kids. You're going to have an incredible amount of grandkids. It'll be hundreds and even thousands. And that will continue to birth a huge nation for all. But that wasn't God's intention or God's desire for him. What he wanted to do with his vision, he wanted to help him understand that there will come a day in which the child of the promise will happen to you. And this child will be so special and so incredible and so marvelous that you'll recognize God's hand in the middle of it. So in order for that to happen, in order for this picture to happen here, so faith could, uh, Abram could have a faith in what, what God did, in order for it to happen, he's going to have to go through 100 years without any children. 
It's going to be 100 years old before God finally allows his wife to become pregnant. He does this so that no one could say this was done by Abraham or by the flesh. He says he will be a child of the, do you remember the term? Promise. He'll be a child of the promise. He'll be a child of the vision that which God had given to him. And he says this will be so special that no one will be able to say anything but look what God has done. Look what God has performed. And that's God's intention and desire in relation to this vision, this provision that he's going to give through this faith promise. Now, in the midst of all these things, as you walk through Genesis 15 and 16 and 17, and I'm going to encourage you to do some reading this week. Just read through 15, 16, and 17. You'll, you'll gain such a great understanding of Romans chapter 4 there. In, in chapter 15, it's for the first time that Abram encounters what he refers to as the all-sovereign God. And it's the first time that we hear the term Yahweh. Okay? Yahweh is the term used. And it means this all-sovereign, all-knowing, all-comprehensive God. This God who is so involved in history from the beginning to the end that he specifically is causing all things to work together as he desires for them to bring about the greatest good for all of his people so that in the end times, as many as possible can be brought back to God, chosen as children, adopted into his family, as could possibly take place. That every last one would be brought in. That's why Jesus talks about this, the parable of the lost coin. And then, then he talks about, then he moves all the way through the different lost areas, the lost money. And then, then he goes into, what about the lost lamb? And then he goes to the lost son. And, and the picture is that despite the fact that the son leaves the father and rejects everything, that he's finally brought back in. And it's the picture of the world that God is so involved in trying to bring in those that are his, he will do anything he can to make it happen. He will do everything he needs to do to make it take place. So he is the God who speaks and reveals himself as sovereign Lord. He finds that in Genesis 15. He says, Now to the one who works, wages are credited as a gift, but as an obligation. But to the one who doesn't work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So he's saying that in this particular case, that God is sovereign and he provides Everything that we need. And that's the picture that he finally gets a hold of. That it's not about him providing it. It's not about him working for God. God doesn't need anything. It's not about him making sacrifices for God. It's about him resting in God's provision and his presence. He credits to him as righteousness. It's not yours because you earned it, but because of your, his love for you. You get credit in the film, just not top billing. You get credits are always seen at the end of the movie. Okay? And that's kind of the interesting picture. It's like God is saying, here's, here's my intention for all of mankind. At the end of the movie, he's got, you know, helped by Abraham, Moses. And you start filling all the blanks. Lee. Ray, you get to figure Peter and go, oh, that's cool. God says, I'm giving you credit. I'm going to give it to you. But the reality is you were you were provided with everything you needed. I just wanted to let you be known that you are needed as part of the provision thing. Um, 
a line I always like so much that God reminds me on a regular basis. I, I start thinking, you know, I'm really okay. And, um, and God says, no, Lee, I'm okay. You're forgiven. And I go, yeah, that's right. What I mean by that is that God is saying, you need to constantly be aware of what I've done for you and respond to me and enjoy that wondrous love that's going to continue to flow into your life that's called forgiveness. And you will fail. But in the midst of that failure, you are my son, you are my daughter, and I love you with an unconditional love. You can never, ever totally fail. You will always be forgiven. He'll always be forgiven. Now, he goes on to say, now, David, the son, he's this great guy. Everybody thinks of David. He's the warrior. He's the guy who, you know, saved all of Israel. He did everything right. He's a good man who has a heart after God. And then he messes up later on. But all in all, David was a, an amazing, amazing man of God. He fails in a particular area. And, and in that midst of that failure, he writes this particular psalm out of Psalm 32. This is written in the midst of his failure as he fell into adultery and became a murderer. And then he writes these words. He says, David says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered over. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. See, that's written in the midst of his depression and his recognition of what a failure. But God still counts him as a success. Blessed, oh, happy, oh, thankful. This wonderful thing of salvation and righteousness given to us on the basis of our faith and who God is and what he will do and what he has done. You see, and so in Genesis chapter 16, Abraham sees God in another way. And he's called El Roy, the, or the God who sees Everything. So he's this sovereign God. He's over everything and everybody. But not only that, he's the God who sees everything that's happening and enters into the situation and becomes a part of it. And that, that's, a, again, this picture of vision that, that God doesn't just call you to do something without being aware of what the results will be and the end of that vision. How it will all come about. He's this wonderful, exalted, glorious one. And at this point in time, he says the God who sees, God changes his name. He goes through a name change here. And the word Abram, which means exalted father, he changes his name just before his wife's become pregnant. He calls him the father of nations. That's what the word Abraham means, the father of nations. And that's where Paul refers here in Romans. He says he's the father of all the nations, not just Israel, not just Israel, but all the nations, all those that God has called in. As a result of belief and recognition of what Jesus has done. So Abraham has this aha moment. He recognizes that God both sees all and he's involved in everything that's happening. He doesn't just see the problem. He enters into it before it happens. And he seeks to make something better happen. That even the evil that takes place, God turns into something that can become good. It's not that God made it evil. It was still evil. It was still wrong. But God takes a look at it and says, let me see what I can do out of this. Let me see what I can put together to make this work. As the wondrous artist of artists, he takes something that is broken and misplaced, and he turns it into this marvelous, marvelous object 
that's completely different. Yeah, Paul will deal with that later in Romans chapter 8, and he does that, that famous 28th verse that we all talk about. Everybody remember that one? Yeah, God works all things together for good. And we, oh, God is working all things. It has been working. We'll continue to work all things together for, for the greatest good. For those who are, love him and are called according to his purpose. For those who are following his vision, there's, there's specific promise he's given. If you're following my vision, I'll work it together for good. I'll bring about the greatest good that can happen in the midst of the situation. Because you see, the, the problem with vision when God calls us is there's always a cost. For Abraham, the cost will be he will live the majority of his life as a pitied man because he doesn't have any children. The father of nations. You have no children. They have to laugh at him. Your name is Abraham. You have no children. What's that about? Is God laughing at you? Abraham says, no, no, no. I'm going to be the father of many nations. And they're going, yeah, yeah. Right on, man. Guy's nuts. I believe it. God promised me. Oh, that's good. It's nuts. How many children do you have? How's that working out for you? God's going to do something. Oh, for a hundred years. First, Abraham is the exalted father who has no children. Great name. For somebody who has no children. And then it's as the father of many nations. I still have no children. Finally has a child. But some 13 years before God is going to bring forth the, I, Isaac, the child of promise, because he has to wait until Sarah goes through menopause and she's unable to have children and he's unable to have children. The only way they can have children is by the power of God. And God is waiting till that time comes. He doesn't tell Abraham that's what's going on. So 13 years earlier, Sarah says, you know, I'm tired of this crap. I think this is your problem. I want you to take Hagar, our maid, and have sex with her and see if you can have children with her. I'm just going to be magnanimous about the whole thing. Go ahead. Not a problem. So he has sex with Hagar and she gets pregnant. And Sarah goes, what? I thought it was your problem. That's not what I intended to happen. And that response, an unwillingness to yield to the vision that God had given them, will cost them immensely. You see, there's always a cost to a vision. Everybody wants to have a vision. Don't you all want to have a great vision from God? How many of you want to have a great vision from God? Come on. Don't you? I, I, you know, I'm like, God, I want to have this amazing, sh- do great things. I want to be like Moses. You know, I want to, I want to part the sea. <sighs> you know, yeah, let's go. It's, it's this great picture of, wow, God used me in this marvelous, incredible way. But there's always a cost for the vision. Remember, in Hebrews it says the cost for Moses was he had to give up all pleasure, all his possessions, all his background, everything. He had to give everything up. He was the son of Pharaoh. He was, he was the guy. He had to give it all up in order to accomplish the vision that God had for him. And the first time he sets out to accomplish the vision, he falls flat because he tries to do it in his own flesh, with his own ideas that, well, I'm smart, I'm powerful, 
I'm capable. I'm going to be the guy to lead these people out of the land. And instead, he ends up being kicked out entirely with nothing. He's off taking care of a bunch of sheep. He said, well, I took care of that. And he's humbled enough that when God calls him, he comes in the power of God, not the power of Moses. It was a cost of his vision that God had given to him. There's a cost to a vision. Jesus said there's always a cost to vision. If you want to be one who is recognized as a Christ follower, then there's a cost. So the cost is this. You must take up your cross daily, deny yourself, and follow me. Is the blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? He said, we've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was after. It's when he chose to fulfill the directives of God and become circumcised according to the covenant. Interestingly enough, Ishmael would be circumcised along with him. who was 13 years of age. Then he had become a man then. He'd become a man set aside by the Jewish people, and he'd become a man. He's circumcised this time. He is the first child to be circumcised and have the seal. But he will not fulfill the vision that God has. The promised child must take precedent because he is the one who will save the entire world. Now, What's amazing about this, I always look at, when you try to do things in your own ideas and your own thoughts in terms of what you're supposed to happen or how is it supposed to happen, you find yourself getting into trouble. The result of this was what we refer to as the Muslim nation. You realize that Ishmael was the son of Abraham who moved into the area that we call Arabia. And the Arab people are considered to be the direct descendants of Ishmael. So the Muslims believe that the promised son of Abraham in Genesis is actually Ishmael, not Isaac. That it's been a corruption of the Old Testament and the New Testament that caused us to believe what was taking place here. See, the process is that in 600, about 600 A.D. is when uh, Muhammad established what we refer to as the Koran and the Muslim religious belief system. That was a set of of revelations that were given to him by the archangel Gabriel. He wrote all these revelations down, and those revelations came what we refer to as the Koran. So after receiving this revelation, he went through the process of calling people to yield to the law that was set out, referred to as the Koran, and began to follow that law in accordance with God's desire and God's direction. And so that was the beginning of the Muslim uh, religion at that point in time, which now has grown to the place where there's some 1.5 billion people who are responding uh, to this particular issue of uh, uh, what we refer to as Muslim religion or the, the Quran. Now, you also need to remember that the Quran is, is, a, is a version of faith, a universal version that's been revealed through many prophets, Abraham, Moses, Ishmael, and Jesus just being some of them. And the belief was that Abraham and Ishmael took, traveled over to a place called Mecca. And there they worshipped God in a special place. Uh, 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 the, the, uh, not clicking on me right now. But the special area there in Mecca that they came and they worshipped. And recognized that God was going to eventually bring forth what we refer to as the Muslim faith. Now, 
I don't believe that, but that's the teaching of Muhammad that, that's given down here. Okay, So we're not called to try to fulfill God's promise through our own ideas or our own thoughts. We're called to allow God to lead us, and then we follow, and we experience his intention and desires as it comes along. So then we have a transition, and he talks in that transition about this amazing picture of, of circumcision that's sealing the deal between Abraham and God and confirming that he's going to follow him from this point on. And that's the first half of this vision message that's laid out for us in Romans 4. Okay, now as we prepare ourselves to take communion, we're going to look at this second half in terms of the thought that's done here. It tells us that uh, the scriptures mean, what does it mean when he says, I've made you the father of many nations? This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. And this is the second part of the portrait. Um, I think simply put, uh, to kind of pull it down into a picture here, uh, Michelangelo once said, the way in which you are able to uh, make a sculpture out of a piece of rock is you have to be able to see the sculptures that was within the rock. You have to have a vision that clarifies the sculpture that's within the rock. And when you see that, then you're able to chip away all the parts that aren't part of that sculpture. And it'll come out as Michelangelo. It'll come out as David. It'll come out as whatever picture God intends. So Abraham has recognized the sovereign Lord who brings the dead back to life, who creates new life out of nothing, is the God who, as we respond to him in faith, changes everything so we can experience what he expects us to experience. See, faith is not denying reality. Faith is facing reality without being discouraged by it. Uh, Rick Warren actually shared that thought. It's facing reality without being discouraged by it. So our part of the vision is to, is to believe what God has done and then begin to act like it. Someone said, if you believe God's going to bring about rain, then you go and you buy an umbrella. That's your faith response. In Noah's case, you build a boat in the middle of the desert. It's a faith response. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed. And he became the father of many nations he did not waver in belief regarding the promise of God. So he becomes this wonderful artist for God as he begins to paint the portrait of faith and righteousness to all those who would believe and recognize who God was, what he has done, and how he would bring forth the promised son. He was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. And it was credited to him as Righteousness. God says, because you believe, you really believe, I'm going to credit to you as righteousness. This wonderful relationship that he would have with God. This, this relationship that's so incredibly valuable. You say the value of relationships. So if we talked about the, the value of, of vision and the cost of vision, well, there's a value of relationship and a cost of relationship. And you're seeing it right here. I'm going to ask a couple of our ladies to come up right now on this side. I'm going to ask the Shannon to come up over on the other side. As we share in this wondrous picture that helps us understand the vision that Abraham had, that he looked forward to this glorious picture in which we would be able to understand how much God loved us and that he was willing to provide for us everything that we needed. That he wanted us to have a relationship with God where we could become alongside him, be a partner, just as Abraham was a partner with God. He believed his promises, and then God began to use him to accomplish his words. It was credited to him as righteousness. He believed in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Everyone. 
He was delivered over to death for our sins, was raised to life for our justification. See, God has a part, and we have a part. If you want to accomplish the vision, you have to enter into the relationship with God. And when you enter into that relationship with God, there's a value of it, it's wonderful, and there's a cost for that relationship. As we get ready to share here, the big thing I want you to understand is that when we share in, in this statement, we're saying, I want to be part of the relationship that God has for me, and there's a cost involved. Any relationship you have has a cost involved. If I choose to make you my friend in reality, not an acquaintance, okay, you become my friend. That demands time and effort and pain and crying and rejoicing and struggling and praying and persevering. That's what a relationship is. And God calls us as we share in this special time to a relationship with Him. A partnership with Him. There's a cost involved. Denying ourselves, Taking up our cross. Following Jesus. Becoming His his, his son and his daughter in our relationships one to another. Accepting the wondrous love of God in my life. And then giving out that love to others around me. And encouraging them to have that same relationship with him. You see, we see what is, what can be, what will be. As we take of this wonderful, marvelous thing called communion. That's what we're doing. We look in the past, what he has done. We look in the present, what he is doing. And we look in the future, what he will do. And so when we take of this, we take it by faith. We believe that God credits us with righteousness. He forgives us our sins. And then he calls us. And he says, let's do something special. In faith, you need to believe, as Hebrews 11, 6 says, that God not only exists, but he rewards those who seek him. We begin to understand that faith is not rejecting reality. It's accepting what it is but expecting God to change it with my help if necessary. See, that's that's faith. It's not rejecting reality. It's accepting what it is and expecting God to change it with my help if necessary. And that's what we're doing when we share in this wondrous time of community. saying, God, I come before you now, and I recognize who you are and what you've done, and I ask you to grant me faith to believe that you're going to change what needs to be changed. And I'll be your partner in it. I'll be your partner in it, whatever you want me to do as well. But by faith, I believe that you're going to bring about the vision. Because I have a relationship with you. You are my father. And when I ask, you always respond. We all stand. I want you to move to the sides.